if I haven't met you before, welcome to Grace Point. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. It's a pleasure to actually have you join us today. Uh, let me pray for us, and I am going to pray what Nate prayed for us, uh, that God might actually refine us uh, as we open up the Bible and hear the preaching of his word. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we do thank you because you reveal yourself and you speak in and through your word. Gracious God, we do thank you for the time we can share as your people. And so we come and as we sit under your word, we do pray and ask that by your spirit, as we hear your word, you might purify us so that we might be a people holy and pleasing to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the next uh, few weeks leading up to Christmas, uh, we're going to spend some time uh, in First Thessalonians. Uh, some of you are familiar with the book. Others may not be as familiar with the book, uh, but that's what we are going to do in the next few weeks. Uh, a very brief introduction. It is there in your outline. Uh, it was a church that Paul and Silas planted. We read about that in Acts chapter 17. And one of the things about the book of First Thessalonians was that it was a church that brought Paul great joy. Uh, he speaks very, very fondly of this church. It was his glory and crown. Uh, it brought him joy. And that's what you'll see in the book. But it was also a church that was actually suffering quite deeply. Uh, a church that was very unsettled uh, by persecution, very severe persecution from the very day they came to know the Lord Jesus and gather as a church. They were a persecuted church. Um, you'll read later in the letter that they, they felt their lives were quite disrupted, a, a, a church where people felt very unsettled. Uh, so that's the bit of the background to the letter. I'll just give you a little bit of that background. But let me share with you why this letter might be helpful for us as a church community. Uh, firstly, it's a letter of encouragement, a letter of encouragement to keep growing in the gospel. Uh, and the Thessalonian church was a church that was actually really doing well. And what's really interesting is that even though they're doing well, Paul continues to encourage them to keep growing in a gospel-enabled faith, love, and hope. Those three things. Uh, faith, love, and hope will be the thread that runs through the book of First Thessalonians. To keep growing in gospel-enabled faith, love, and hope. Okay, So um, that's what I'm hoping you'll look out for as you read First Thessalonians. Um, secondly, like all the letters in the New Testament, like all the letters that we read in the New Testament, it's actually a letter that shows up our deficiencies as a church community. Uh, it's a letter that shows up our failings, our sin, what we need to repent of. And, what, and, and it's also a letter that's there to help us imagine what it could be like if we receive the gospel like the Thessalonians. This is what things could be like in a church community, a people whose lives and relationship within the church and whose lives in the world are marked by these three things, faith, love, and hope. Now, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at the opening three verses. We're only going to look at three verses this, this morning, which will set the scene for the rest of the letter. Uh, verse 1, you'll notice with me in your outline, verse 1 uh, is a greeting, uh, and then verse 2 and 3 is a thanksgiving prayer. And so you've got a greeting that reminds the Thessalonians of who they are. And then you've got a thanksgiving for their faith, love, and hope. 
Okay, so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So uh, if in your Bibles, notice how uh, this letter opens in verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Standard opening. This letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Paul and Silas together, they planted the church, Acts 17. Timothy was, uh, we know from chapter 3, was sent and he spent time with the Thessalonian church. Uh, and he spent time, we read chapter 3, verse 2 and verse 6, to strengthen and encourage them because they're being unsettled. And so he writes to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's a greeting that reminds them of who they are. He calls them, in your Bibles, look with me, the church of the Thessalonians. Now, if you just read that phrase, the church of the Thessalonians, there's really nothing special about that. It's like saying the church at Burwood. There's really nothing special about that because the word church simply means gathering. Okay, Uh, To the gathering of the Thessalonians. Uh, In the book of Acts, the word church is actually used to speak of a legal gathering. Uh, It's used to speak of a rioting mob, right? So at its most basic level, a church is a physical gathering of people to the gathering at Burwood. But behind the word church in the Bible is also the idea of being called out, summon, beckon, come and gather, come and meet, come and belong, come and be saved. And this is what makes the church different from every other gathering in culture and society. You notice the second half of verse 1. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, you know, the church isn't just an actual physical gathering of people in a particular place or location. It's also a group of people who have been called out. God the Father has called them into being through the saving work of the Lord Jesus. So... I know there's some people online, and there's reasons why you might be online, you might be unwell, you might be a shut-in. But there is actually no such thing as being part of an online church. You, you know, you, it's, it's, a, it's strange. You know, in fact, it's not right to speak of, I'm going to church online. Well, you're actually not going anywhere, because you're not gathering with anyone, or meeting with anyone. The only gathering taking place is you, yourself, and your dog or cat at home. The nature of the church is people physically gathered in a particular place. And the identity of the church is people who, are, who have been called into being, summoned, beckoned by God the Father through the saving work of Jesus. They are the people of God, gathered through the saving work of Jesus in the city of Thessalonica. A city within a city. A community within why the community. A new society within society, a countercultural group within culture and society. Now, can I say this? I suspect we don't think much when we gather on Sundays. Uh, it's just another week at church, uh, and then for some of us, it's optional. For some, it's nothing special. For us, we come and go as we please. But maybe, just maybe, we should be looking at church another way. Uh, author James Smith uh, writes this. He writes. Week after week, for millennia, for 2,000 years around the globe, a peculiar group of people is gathered by a call to worship. A call that, in a sense, goes out before the service even begins. You know that? The call of God in our life goes out even before we gather. 
But that is then formally declared in the opening of the service called, and you'll notice in your order of services, the first thing, the call to worship, often from the Psalms. The call of God, he summons to you, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Come, let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Come, let us bow before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great king, the great king above all gods. The call to worship. And then he writes, the rather mundane fact that people show up to a church is, however, an indicator of something fundamental. That a people has gathered in response to the call of God in their lives. Whenever we gather for public worship, it is because we have been summoned, beckoned, called out. And you are here because God has called you. That is what church means, ecclesia, the called out people of God. But something more is happening as you come each Sunday. The very fact that we gather says something. It's implicitly reminding us, and it's training our minds, our imagination, the imagination of our children. Because gathering indicates that Christians are called out from the world called out from their homes, called out from their families, called out from their suburbs, called out to be formed into a community of worship, a community of witness, a city within a city, a new society within society, a countercultural community within wider community, salt in a world devoid of life, light in a world of darkness. In fact, when you really think about it, there is a slight hint of scandal as you come and gather in response to the call of God. Because, you know, as you come to worship, maybe not today, because it was raining this morning, but normally on a Sunday when the sun is shining and you come to worship as you gather, you you begin to notice not everyone is coming, are they? Your neighbors are at home, probably sleeping in. Some of your street, you know, on a sunny day, people are mowing their lawns. You may even be leaving family members that you know of who don't answer the call to worship. And as you head this way, on a really sunny day, you'll see the, the street packed, right? People are out shopping. People are out in the cafes. You drive past countless groups gathered in our parks. Interesting, isn't it? Our response to the call of God together is a reminder to us that God's Salvation is actually at work in our lives. A reminder to us that we don't belong there. Right? We, we don't, long, don't belong there, but here, we're people called together by God, summoned together. A gathered people who belong to God the Father through the saving work of the Son before a still sleeping world. Now, now imagine the difference it would make if we actually thought of our coming together for church, like that. As you wake up on Sunday, as you get into the car, as you drive here, as you walk down that street, as you enter, you're being called. You're being summoned by God the Father through the saving work of the Son. Let me say this, you know. um, There is nothing casual where we gather as a church for worship. Listen very carefully. There is nothing casual when we gather as a church for worship. Because if you actually survey the landscape of the Bible, 
There's no such thing in the Bible as casual worship. You can find it. Let me know. The church is the physical gathering of people in a particular place that God has called, that God the Father has summoned through the saving work of the Son. And if you are a Christian or if you're a disciple of Jesus, one of the most countercultural things you do, or what we do as Christians, one of the most countercultural things you will do in your family is to turn up at church on Sunday. Because like the Thessalonians, we are the people God the Father has called out and gathered through the saving work of the Son. That's who we are. But notice verse 2 and verse 3. Have a look at verse 2 and verse 3 with me. Uh, Verse 1, a greeting that reminds uh, them of who they are. And in verse 2, what we actually now have is we now have thanksgiving for their faith, love, and hope. Now, like most of his letters, Paul now gives thanks. Okay, So uh, a lot of Paul's letters, opening greeting, and then he gives thanks, he prays for them. And if you read verse 2, Paul is especially filled with thanksgiving. He's so encouraged by this church. He's filled with thanksgiving. He says, we always thank God for all of you, and we continually, regularly mention our prayers. He thinks of the Thessalonians, and he's constantly giving thanks. He's thankful for them. And he's thankful for three things. You'll see there, verse 3. He's thankful for their faith, their love, their hope. We, re- we remember before God our Father. Every time we pray, we remember before God our Father uh, your, your faith, Right? Your, your works produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse 3 is so significant, right? Uh, I was reflecting on it this week. Because, you know, in a church like ours, it's very easy to think that the marks of a good church, that's why Popo asked you the question, right? If you're looking for a church, what would you be looking for? It's so easy for us to think that the marks of a good church is the breadth of ministry, or the breadth of activities, or the breadth of programs we can offer. That's how we think of church, right? Do we have a good Sunday school? Do we have an active youth ministry? Do we, have a, do we have an active men's ministry or women's ministry? Do we have a ministry to single people? Do we have a ministry that serves the local community? Do we have a play group? Do we have an after-school program? Are we serving the marginalized? And on and on it goes. But you know, when you look at verse 3, it's really interesting because notice that we often benchmark how good a church is by whether it's providing us with goods and services, Paul doesn't do that, does he? Maybe, maybe we are more captive to our culture than we realize. You know, I read this month uh, a very old book called The Gagging of God by D.A. Carson. Uh, and just as relevant today, he surveys the, the landscape of the Western church, mainly American churches, but I think it's true of all churches in the West today. And he says, a survey of the Western church reveals, he writes, a profound selfism. And then he writes, the self has become the principle of interpretation. In other words, the self has become the framework, the grid by which we interpret the world in which we live. It is the framework by which we see and we do church. Express, he says, in the way we approach church as consumers. Like shopping, right? You look for the shop that gives you what you're looking for for the lowest possible price. Now, this is what he writes. The endemic consumerism of the age feeds our culture of greed. We are shaped more by our mall culture or online shopping. And then he says, it even defines our humanity. It defines who you are as a human being. We are not primarily worshippers anymore or thinkers or God's image bearers. 
We are not even lovers of people. He says we are consumers. Our identity, he says, is that of shopper. And that identity as a shopper becomes the framework, the worldview, the grid by which we view everything in life. Our relationships, right? The way we treat people, but also the way we relate to church. Those are not my words, by the way. But for Paul, notice, the marks of a good church, a church worth giving thanks for, is a people, a people whose lives are marked by faith, love, and hope. Because the church is supposed to be a place where souls are formed, where hearts are shaped, where minds are being taught the word, where disciples of Jesus are being made. The church isn't a shopping mall of goods and services. And Paul gives thanks because he finds in this church community the presence of gospel-enabled faith, love, and hope. In fact, verse 8, you come down to verse 8, which is why we got uh, Viv to read it for us. It says, this is what they're being known for. They are a model to the, to the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. Their faith is known everywhere. Can you imagine that? A church that's known, a church that's known for the kind of people present rather than its programs. Uh, the, strength of, uh, the strength and health of a church is determined actually by the kinds of people present rather than its ministries. Now, you've got to pause and really think about that, right? Because it's worth asking, isn't it? You know, when people actually visit our church community, when they meet us and they spend time with us, you know, they're trying to work out whether they want to join Grace Point, right? When people join our community groups, when they do life with us and they share their lives with us, uh, it's, it's worth asking, isn't it? Do they see us? Do they see you as a man or woman who is marked by faith, love, and hope? Do they think, wow, here is a people who are serious, are serious about their faith, who are serious about aligning their lives to Jesus. Here's the people so captured by the love of the Lord Jesus that they'll go the extra mile to serve others around them, whether in the church or in the workplace. Here's the people who are incredibly calm. They exude a non-anxious presence because they have their eyes on the hope of heaven. Now, that's what the Thessalonians were actually known for. So, have a look with me. Here's the first one, right? Look at, with me at verse 3. Paul says, I'm giving thanks for your work produced by faith. And so, they're known as a people whose faith, whose trust in Jesus, that's what faith is, they, their trust in Jesus overflowed into works of obedience, okay? That's what he's talking about. They're people whose trust in Jesus led them to aligning their lives to Jesus, his word, his command, his will, his instruction, his leading, Now, in life, uh, we always operate on the principle of faith, by the way. So uh, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, everyone lives their life based on faith. Okay, So it's not a religious thing. It's it's an everybody thing. Because we always align our lives to where we put our faith, Okay, where we put our trust. And we always have things in our lives that we trust, right? And faith, like I said, is not a religious thing. And so, you know, this morning you exercised faith and you came in here uh, and you looked at the chair and, you know, you know, Jasper thought, you know, I have faith, the chair will hold my weight. And so I acted accordingly. I sat down. I've aligned my life to the object of my faith. Now, we do that with all sorts of things in life. I have faith that this career path I've chosen, that's why I've, I've picked to, to get into this industry. I believe, I trust that doing this will give me financial security. And so I organize my life around that. 
I align my life around the object of my faith. We all do it in life, okay? Now, it's not a surprise that if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're a Christian, it's not a surprise that Jesus would be the object of your faith, right? Your trust. Because if he saved you, if he saved you from the ultimate pain and suffering, death and judgment, and you trust him to save you, it's fair to assume that you would now align your life to his word, his will, his purposes, his leading. And so trust in Jesus always produces a work of obedience. Jesus himself says that, John chapter 14, he says, anyone who loves me will obey my commands. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my commands. That's John 14. If you love him and you trust him, you will align your life with his word. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus also makes it clear, right, that you can tell a tree by its fruit. And the fruit isn't the work of ministry, Right? Fruit is never the work of ministry, but whether the fruit of obedience to his word is present in your life. And that's why Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of God, except the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Except the one who obeys my commands. Now, I want us to be very, very clear. Your works of obedience does not save you, but it is the fruit of a saved life. You know, the Bible never teaches salvation by works of obedience or salvation by good works or salvation by being a more moral person or keeping the law, right? That's not how we get saved. Religion says, here's a list of things you must do to be saved, for God to save you. But Christianity says, trust Jesus to save you. The good life you could never live, he lived for you. The death and the judgment that you could never face, he died for you. Trust his saving work for you. So religion says you must do to be saved. Christianity says trust Jesus to be saved. But the Bible does teach that real faith or real trust in Jesus will bear the fruit of obedience. Now here is a community of faith whose lives are aligned with Jesus. The life of faith is always expressed in obedience to the object of your faith. Which is why the struggle to be obedient Okay? Whatever circumstances you find yourself in is always a faith issue. Obedience is always a faith issue, a trust issue. When I'm faced with choices in life, when I'm working out how to respond to circumstances in my life, how I plan my life, how I treat people, my colleagues at work, my school friends, my family, how I think of issues, how I parent my children, how I use my finances, it is all guided by what's at the center of my life, the object of my trust in life. Right? Who's calling the shots, basically? You know, sometimes, you know, you, those of you who've got kids, sometimes your children will say to you, right, I don't want you to be the boss of me. Well, if you trust Jesus, he's the boss. Who you trust enough to listen to. If we're a people of faith in Jesus, we, we will also be a people of obedience to Jesus. But notice, Paul also gives thanks, gives thanks because here is the people whose experience of God's love prompted them to exhaust themselves in love for others. And so you see verse 3, I'm giving thanks for your labor prompted by love. Now I think this is really surprising because, um, you know, when your life has been just thrown upside down, when you're dealing with pain and suffering, when you don't feel cared for, when your plate in life is full, when you're emotionally tanked out, the last thing you're thinking of is carrying the burdens of other people. Now remember the Thessalonian church, our very unsettled church. 
they're a suffering church. Now, here's the thing, isn't it? You and I know that when life is hard, when you're personally suffering, when you're juggling a whole range of demands, the last thing any of us do is to think of others. Right? The last thing we want to do is think about how we can serve others or care for others. Suffering always tends to make us self-absorbed. It does. Uh, we, we, you know, when, when, when life is hard for us, we tend to distance ourselves from other people, right? Uh, when life is difficult, uh, we tend to be unconcerned. In fact, we're blind to the needs of others. And life can sometimes become a pity party, can't it? We're all like this. Me, myself, and I are the center. Uh, our perspective on life and the people around us are gripped by that mantra. What about me? You ever ask that? What about me? Who's caring for me? Who's helping me? Have you ever noticed that when you are anxious and fearful and suffering, when you're facing hardship and uncertainty and when you're pressured and when you're feeling really unsettled, we rarely think of others around us. And the last thing we want to do is walk the extra mile for others around us when we ourselves are struggling. But here's the thing. Did you know that even if things were going well in your life, carrying other people's burdens does not come naturally. So even if you had no issues in life and life was going well, carrying other people's burdens does not come naturally. Um, I read um, just yesterday uh, a recent study in the Journal of Experimental Psychology, Jan 2022. This is the title. Caring is costly. People avoid the cognitive work of compassion. And so basically this study in this journal of psychology, they did some studies, and then they discovered, they showed that across all studies on compassion, they showed people opted to always avoid compassion if it meant it was going to be costly mentally and emotionally for them. Caring for others is costly, and the majority of people will avoid it at all costs, even if things are going well in their lives. Even when things are going well in our lives, we struggle to walk the extra mile for other people. Now, what does Paul find? Have a look with me. Even in their trials, even when their lives are unsettled, it says they are laboring for others, right? They're exhausting themselves out and caring for others. Now, it's a different word there. Work produced by faith, labor prompted by uh, love. It's a different word. Same word in English, but but it's a different word that Paul uses because it's not an ordinary word. The idea of labor has an intensity to it. Okay? It's like carrying a very, very heavy burden for someone else. Uh, it's sacrificially exerting yourself to care for someone else, to serve someone else. And so uh, work focuses on what you do. Labor focuses on the exhausting effort required to carry out that work. Okay? That means... The Thessalonians, they were giving themselves to serving in ways that were personally costly. They were exerting effort. They are shouldering shouldering the heavy burden in serving other people. Now, the power to love like that, the power to love when you need love, the power to love when you're struggling, the power to love when your life is unsettled, right? The power to carry the heavy load of other people comes from, it comes from, Knowing a greater love that's able to meet your need. That's the secret, right? How do you love other people when you're struggling? Well, the only way you can do it is if you've experienced a greater love that meets your need. Now, think of the Thessalonians, right? 
What gave them the power to shoulder the burden of others even when their lives were unsettled? Well, the answer is in their experience of a far greater love that they found in the gospel. Not just any kind of love, but God's love for them in the gospel, in the Lord Jesus. Now, if you have your Bibles, move with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, very, very quickly. Because when you get to chapter 4, verse 9, this is what you begin to read. You read that God himself has taught them to love, even in their very difficult circumstances. God has taught them to love. About brotherly love, you don't need to write we don't, you don't need me to write you, uh, write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. You see? God has personally taught them how to love one another by loving them. They've experienced a greater love in their lives, a greater comfort in the one who has toiled for them, in the one who has exerted labor for them, who has carried their ultimate suffering, who has faced their ultimate pain, who has dealt with the ultimate disruption in their lives, death, who has met their greatest need at the cross. Now, here's the thing, right? I'm not being trite when I say this. Look at the cross where Jesus has died for you and know that you are loved, comforted, and cared for. You see, when you look at the cross and you see the one who has labored in love for you, you cannot rightly say that you are not cared for and loved. You simply can't. Because there you see his labor of love for you. There you see him caring the weight of your sin. There you see him crushed in your place. There you see him die the death that should have been yours. Only a greater experience of love is going to prompt you and enable you to love others, to labor for others, especially when you're struggling. And this is why Paul gave thanks, because here in the Thessalonian church, you find men and women whose lives have been completely drowned in Jesus' love for them, freed from being self-absorbed, self-protective, to being a community that carried the burdens of others. Here's a question worth asking, is it? Is it possible to serve, to love, and to care for others even in your pain and suffering? Is it possible to care and love for others even when you're fearful and anxious? Is it possible to carry the burdens of others even when your life is unsettled and your circumstances are hard? Well, the answer should be yes, isn't it? It should be, and it is a yes, and it is a possibility, only if you know the power of a greater love. Because only the power of a greater love can give you safety, security, and stability to enable you to labor and love for the people around you. Now, it's interesting because, uh, and we'll eventually get to uh, the end of uh, chapter 5, but when you get to chapter 5, Paul actually talks about who do you labor and love for, right? Uh, In fact, chapter 4, verse 9 to 12, Paul says, keep laboring in love for each other, and it's hard work. And I tell you why it's hard work, because when you get to chapter 5, verse 14, he says, this is what it looks like. These are the people you should labor in love for. And it's not people who are going to give you anything back. It's not people who are going to return your care and love. Paul says, give yourself, let me read chapter 5, verse 14, give yourself to encouraging the disheartened, helping the weak, being patient with everyone, not paying back wrong for wrong, striving to do what is good for each other and the outsider. It's an exhausting work, isn't it? Notice that the nature of laboring prompted by love is to care for the struggling, the weak, the hurting, the broken, the discouraged, the wounded. It's not labor of love for those who can give you something back. 
It's not labor of love for the, for the lovable. It's not a labor of love for those who can meet your expectation. No, it's laboring for the disheartened, the weak, the people who push your buttons because you need to be patient, the one who has wronged you inside and outside. It says doing good to each within, each other within and outside the church. So one of the marks of a church where the gospel is at the center is a church that loves each other and the people they meet outside the church Loving others like Jesus. Not just any love, but a love that labors, that goes the extra mile, that shoulders the burden of other people. You know, a community of care and love is a community where people are expending their time, their energy, their physical presence, the financial resources, their hospitality to those around them because they have understood the care and love of the Father in their lives. And I know when we talk about, um, I mean, so often at Grace Fund, when we talk about being a community of love, being a community of care, a lot of people are thinking, and some of you are thinking this right now, wow, that would be great if someone cared for me at Grace Point. You see how our hearts are so self-absorbed? We're incredibly consumed with the self, even when we hear the Bible. Well, can I say to you, Someone has already cared for you. The Father loves you. The Son has labored with His very life for you. Someone has loved you and cared for you more than anyone else ever will in your life. He's done it. If you have come to know the great labor of love the Father has shown you and the giving up of the Son for you, then maybe then maybe you are being called today to labor in love for someone else the way the Father has loved you. But Paul also gives thanks because here's a people whose hope, whose hope is in the return of Jesus, and that inspired them to keep standing firm. Paul says, look at uh, verse 3, I'm giving thanks for your endurance inspired by hope in Jesus. They're standing firm in their suffering. They're not budging. They're standing firm in their fears, their anxiety, even though life is unsettling. You know, there is no hint of self-pity or despair. They walk in obedience, trusting Jesus. They keep loving and caring for each other, carrying other people's burdens. And now they are moving forward. They have not been unsettled. They are steady. They are anchored. Now, they didn't give up because they knew God had something better planned for them. Do you know, when life is tough... Only hope in something greater, hope in something greater coming your way is what gives you the power to stand firm, to keep going in adversity and suffering, right? If you know something better is coming your way. Uh, And that's the reason why when people have no hope, when they can't see a better future, they spiral into a cycle of despondency. They fall into despair, right? That's why Christian hope, Christian hope, notice in this verse, at the end of verse 3, Christian hope is anchored in Jesus, Because as you come down, uh, in the very last verse, I think verse 9, verse 10 that uh, Viv read for us, you notice, as you come down very quickly to verse 10, you read of how Jesus promises a better day coming. A day when he will finally say, we read a day when he will come to deliver us from the coming wrath. Judgment day is the day when he makes things right. Okay, that's Paul's way of saying, if you're suffering right now, if you're crushed right now, if you're experiencing loss right now, if you're broken and sick right now, there will be a day of justice, a day when things will be made right, and a day 
when what's lost will be returned to you, a day when you will know healing forever, a day when your suffering will be a distant memory, a better day is coming because of Jesus. And when the day comes to fix what's wrong with our world and our lives, right, when we know that, it gives us hope. Now, later in chapter 4, Paul will again remind us of that coming hope. In fact, when you get to chapter 4, he'll speak of hope in terms of the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, and he's coming again to save. That's chapter 4, verse 13, to chapter 5, verse 11. He, he writes, uh, let me read that. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe God will bring with Jesus those who have died. The day of the Lord is coming when he makes things right, and then he says, put on salvation as a helmet, put on hope. And then he says, encourage each other with this hope. Twice he says, encourage each other with this hope. Keep your eyes on what's coming. Now, secular people, non-Christian people, maybe you are a secular person, or if you've got friends who will hear of the second coming of Jesus, and a lot of secular people will say the belief in someone rising from the dead and coming back to fix the world is unbelievable. It's nonsense. I don't believe that. But I want to say this, it's very hard to deny, whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, it's very hard to deny what you, your heart actually desires, right? Because whether you're a Christian or not, we wish that death was not the last word. In fact, we wish, in the face of death, we wish there was a day when things were returned to us. We wish death was not the last word. We wish there was a day when things are made right, wrongs restored, suffering removed, sickness healed, justice dispensed for those who've gotten away with it. And so even if you're not a religious person, someone who you know, in your head does not believe in a God or the idea that Jesus rose or is coming again, it's interesting because in your heart of hearts, you wish a resurrection was possible because you want life and love returned to you. You might not believe in the return of the king who will fix the world and make things right, but in your heart and hearts, everyone wishes there was someone who will one day make things right. Right? If there is no resurrection, then death ultimately wins. We don't get life and love back. If there is no return of the king, injustice ultimately wins. Suffering ultimately wins because no one's going to make things right in your life or my life. And here's the thing. Even if you didn't believe in a resurrection, the possibility of life return to you, or someone coming back to fix our broken lives and broken world. The deepest desire of every human heart is for this to be true. And Christian people believe it's true because Jesus died and rose and said he would come again to make things right. And that's where we anchor our hope in the present, even in the worst of circumstances. That is what we declare and remember when we celebrate the Lord's Supper as we'll do today. We, he died, we, we, we proclaim his death until he comes. He died, he rose, and he will come again. We affirm the wonderful truth that we are loved, he died, because Jesus died for us, that means he loves us, and we affirm the wonderful truth that there is hope, whatever is happening in our lives, because the one who has loved us is risen, and he will come again to make things right. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Can I say this? You can only endure on the face of very difficult circumstances, if you know for sure there are better days ahead. If you know for sure the best is yet to come and what you have lost is going to be returned to you. What has been wronged in your life is going to be made right. Whatever suffering you're going through is going to be healed forever. 
I want to say to you, the Thessalonians found it in Jesus. His death for them, his resurrection, and his promise of an end game. A day when he returns to make things right. See, the Thessalonian church was a church marked by resilience, anchored in the hope of the gospel, standing on the promises of Jesus. And I want to say to you, a church community where Jesus is at the center is actually marked by eyes and hearts and minds that see beyond the present. Don't get me wrong. It's marked by people who live their lives in the present. But a people who face the present, that responds to the present with a promise of eternity on the horizon. It's a very different way to live. In the Lord's Supper, the that Christians have celebrated for 2,000 years, we remember and anchor and we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. He died, He rose, He will come again for you. That's what we affirm when we confess the Apostles' Creed, as we will do today. I believe He died, He rose, and that He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And I believe in the resurrection of the life, the body, and the life everlasting. I believe Jesus will come again to make everything right, to bring the healing we need to return life and love that we have lost. You see, people of hope in the gospel are people who have a very loose grip on the present. Did you hear that? People of the gospel are people who have a very loose grip on things and stuff in the present. And people whose hope in the gospel are people who are not easily unsettled by present circumstances. They're a non-anxious presence because they have their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to pause for a moment. Look around you. Everyone looks pretty ordinary. But I want to say to you, this is not an ordinary gathering. Because you are not ordinary people. Because you are the called out people of God. You are people God the Father has summoned together in the saving work of the Son. I hope you remember that. But as the called out people of God, it's worth asking, isn't it? Are we a church marked by faith, love, and hope? A people who are serious about our faith, who are serious about aligning our lives to Jesus, are people who are so captured by the love of Christ that we will go the distance to care for the people around us, not just in here, but the outsider, are people who are calm and non-anxious presence because we have our eyes on the hope of heaven. Just pause for a moment. What might God be saying, not to us, let's just bring it down to us as individuals. What might God be saying to you? What might God be saying to you? It's worth asking, isn't it? What is God calling you to today? Maybe, maybe he's calling you to trust him. Maybe he's calling you to trust him, and maybe, or maybe he's calling you to step out in obedience in an area of life. And, and, and you just have not been able to do that because, let's be honest, you just can't trust him or you don't trust him. 
Maybe God is asking you to trust Him, and there's a space in your life He wants you to step out in obedience. Maybe that's what He's calling you to. Or maybe you feel really uncared for, which is why you are distant, which is why you find it really hard to care for the people around you, uh, to respond in love and kindness in your workplace. And maybe God is actually saying to you, I love you, and I do care for you. Look at my labor of love for you. Let that fill your heart, your mind. Let me care for you. And, and maybe if you allow God to do that, it will enable you to step into a space where you'll start loving people where you'll start caring and shouldering their burdens. And maybe as you do that, your eyes will suddenly be open to the needs of other people around you. Maybe God is asking you to step into that space, to allow Him to love you. Maybe that's what you most need. Or maybe you're in some, you're, you find yourself, maybe you're in a really difficult circumstance right now, your life is, you know, a mess. Uh, you're struggling. Things are very unsettled in your life. And maybe God is saying to you, put your hope in me. There are better days coming. A day when I'm going to make things right. Maybe your mind is clouded and you struggle with anxiety. And he says, you know, there's going to come a day when your mind will be crystal clear. Put your hope there. Or maybe you're suffering right now. It's un- things are just unjust in your life. Well, he says he's going to make things right. And maybe he wants you to step out in hope. To actually anchor in that hope. Rather than live in a cycle of despair and despondency. What's God saying to you? What is God actually calling you to? Let's just pause and think about that, right? What is God calling you to? as you hear his word this morning. Let me invite the music team. They're going to come up. As they come up, we're going to sing in a moment. I'm going to give us a moment to just pause and allow God to speak to us. What is God calling you to this morning? And then I'm going to pray for us.
Father God, we do want to thank you that you have called us out of darkness into the light. In the darkness of our clouded minds and hearts, you are the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of your glory, your power, your love for us displayed in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us today to be a people who, because of Jesus, are overflowing in faith, love, and hope. Work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, and an endurance inspired by hope in Jesus, our Savior and King. Amen.